So please turn now to Genesis 8 in your copy of the Bible. We'll be reading our text from here in just a minute. This American Life, episode 296 of this popular radio show on NPR, it covered the experience of rebuilding lives after an event that was seared quickly on the national consciousness. It was aired on September 9th, 2005, and movingly depicted the lives of New Orleans survivors of Hurricane Katrina. I just had a, a chance to listen to it. I didn't hear it when it was originally broadcast, but I listened to it this past week. And it was really moving just to hear people describe in very real time what they were going through, describing what they saw, what they heard, what they felt. There was discussion um, in nature of the New Orleans flooding about what caused it, where people were, what they did in response to the rising waters, and then some of the early aftermath of that flood. And they titled that particular episode, After the Flood. And that's where we are this afternoon in our Genesis narrative. We're looking at a post-Diluvian, post-Diluvian, after the flood. We're looking at a, a world that is after the flood through the eyes of Noah and his family as communicated by the author of Scripture. Tim taught us two important messages the last couple of weeks about the descendants of Adam to Noah and then about the flood event that God brought Noah through. God has something big to teach us, I believe, today as well. And it's my ongoing prayer that this message shapes and changes us as a church according to his will. Would you please look at Genesis with me now? We'll start reading near the end of chapter 8 and read through the end of chapter 9. And actually, we'll cut that a little bit shorter and catch up with some of it in a little bit. So let's start in Genesis 8, verse number 15. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. This is the word of God. I'm going to pray as we start. Would you join me as we look to God? Dear Father, we ask that you would be pleased to meet with us today. And I know that in light of your holiness, in light of what we know about your majesty, that would be a very foolish request were it not for Christ. But it is in his merits and his alone that we come and ask you to come and to meet with us. Let your powerful and transforming word be planted deeply in our hearts today by your spirit. I feel my need, I feel our need to hear from you and to be changed. And I know that for all of us, there's important things that clamor for our attention even during this time together. But none can ultimately be more needful, more important for us than to hear from God, the creator and judge of all. We are your humble servants, Lord. May we point to Jesus. May we look to Jesus the pleasing, fragrant sacrifice before you. And it's in his name we pray with faith that you will hear and that you love to give good gifts to your children. Amen. So the text I just read is a picture of life after the flood. And I've titled this message, Never Again, with a question of sorts. Remember how much of Genesis 1 was the act of God creating, but then separating. He would create light, and then he would separate it from the darkness to make a distinction. He would create land, and he'd separate the land from the water, and he'd separate the the water above the firmament from the water below the firmament. So there's a separation process going on in Genesis 1. And the flood, in many ways, reversed that. It rolled back the separation as you have 
the water that is above the firmament coming down in a torrential downpour and meeting the water below. As you have the boundaries between land and sea be gradually rolled back until there's no difference at all and sea covers everything. But then the language changed in Genesis 8 where Tim was preaching and God separated land and water once again. God reset the process of life and of seasonal growth and basically reinstituted the created order. And after the flood, we have another first family, like Adam and Eve, from which all mankind would come after that. And remember, in the back of our minds, we should have a little light blinking or maybe a a big fluorescent neon light flashing this promise from Genesis chapter 3 about the seed of a woman. If we're reading through this and and understanding it biblically and redemptively, we're going to have that always being brought to our mind. And as we see God almost wipe out all of creation, we're going to remember, but wait, he promised a seed of the woman. Wait, there's this family left, Noah's family. Maybe it's from them that God will bring this one to crush the serpent's head. Today's message has a very simple outline built around a series of questions. These are questions that I was kind of thinking and processing through as I prepared this week. It's my prayer that they'll bring us to what what is God's primary focus, God's primary point through this text. So for starters, I ask myself the question, what would it be like to be the only family alive? So I was processing that this week and picturing this very much like a post-apocalyptic world. That, that's what it was. There was no one else living. And other than God's promise to, to them, the promise to provide an heir of the woman, they probably had no idea what was coming next. If you've ever seen a movie or read a book or there's probably other things to seen a play about a post-apocalyptic world, Remember what it felt like to imagine you are the last people on earth. Everyone else has died through this apocalypse, this this event. And there may be some movies or, or some stories that come to your mind in thinking of that. But then remind yourself that this was real. For, for Noah and for his family, they were the last ones on earth. Even Adam and Eve in the garden didn't go from cities filled with people to just them. But that's what Noah and his family went through. I can, I can guess what that would have felt like. I can infer, I can hypothesize, but I really don't know. We can wonder how it would feel to be stepping off the ark and breathing in fresh air again in this newly recreated world. And while we don't know exactly how they felt, we do know what they did. We know what God said and what God did. These things give us really good information about God's master plan and what's important to him. So what did they do? Noah's very first action when getting off the ark with the animals and with his family, we read in verse 20 of chapter 8, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. What you have done? I I mean, I, I think, you know, there's lots of things he could have done. They probably didn't have anywhere to live. I mean, everything was destroyed. So he could have gotten off and built a house or a tent or something. He could have gotten off and... You know, spent some time just kind of gazing at the new landscape, being thankful for, you know, some land to look at instead of just water. Instead, his first act was profound. In short, Noah worshipped. 
Sometime along the way, I believe, whether it was while he was building the ark, while he was floating along, Noah recognized that he wasn't worthy of this favor that God was showing to him. He wasn't, he hadn't merited this grace that God had extended and putting him on this, this life raft. Perhaps he thought of some specific sins that he had committed and knew that because of these sins, he too was worthy of judgment. And his response was to take some of every clean animal and every bird. And remember, before you think that he was extincting some species, extincting probably isn't a word, but making extinct some species, remember there were seven of those clean animals and clean birds, probably for this very purpose, probably for for a sacrificial end. And he presents these animals on an altar to Yahweh, to God. So this act shows that he recognized that he was thankful. And we'll come back a little bit later to a little bit more about that sacrifice. But after the flood, sin continues. In fact, that's one of the things that God says. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God didn't intend this flood to be some sort of second chance. He didn't intend that the flood was an opportunity for a man to somehow create this new utopia again and live in fellowship with him without sinning. If so, it would have been a failure. But that was not his intent. No, the flood accomplished the judgment that God intended and required for man's wickedness. In fact, the flood teaches us that we as a race, we as mankind are sinful and that we need someone to save us. In the flood, sin was judged and salvation for some was demonstrated. And after the flood, this is important, God connects his ongoing grace toward man with man's ongoing sinfulness. He connects that. He says, The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature. Right next to each other, you have man is going to keep sinning and I'm going to keep pouring out grace in withholding the judgment that they deserve. And I'm going to summarize then kind of the point that's coming out at the beginning of chapter of chapter 9. God blessed Noah. So God institutes blessing. This is another action of God. We have what did what did Noah do after he got off the boat? What did God do? God begins by blessing. God begins by reinstituting the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God also established that his created order would always continue, that he was not going to stop seasons, he was not going to stop day and night, hot and cold. This was going to continue as God's creative order to bless mankind. He changes some of the relationships between man and animals. He says that now the animals are going to fear man, we don't see this before. We don't even see it after the fall. So, so for some reason, this relationship changes. He changes their dietary commandments. Instead of just giving them every green plant, he tells them and the animals that they may eat flesh, not as dictators over or destroyers of the good things God made, but he gives them the creation as wise recipients of it to use it creatively and for his glory. And then there's this mention of blood. So for some reason, he inserts into this narrative 
that blood is going to be significant, that you can't eat the blood with the animal because that's where the life is. And he's not telling us the whole story, but I think it's almost like foreshadowing that, okay, pay attention, blood's important. I'm going to put that, I'm going to insert that here in the story. Since it carries life, it's not to be eaten. And then I think very importantly, he re-points out the value of the image of God, the imago dei in man. And as a result of that, he institutes what we today would call capital punishment. This is as a defense and a validation of man being made in God's image. Human life is very sacred. And I'm not making this as a political statement for us this afternoon, but since God's image is in man, there are certainly personal implications for how we should treat other man, for things like care for the unborn, care for the elderly, for the orphaned. And then how do we treat those who clearly and convincingly take the life of another image bearer? We, we have that taught us in this chapter as a way to flesh out a little bit just how important it is that the image of God is in us. And then this section ends with a near repeat of the earlier mandate. So verse 1 of chapter 9 and verse 7 are very closely, um, it's almost a repetition of it. And it's a sort of a, a bracketing, or we've heard the word already in this series, inclusio. He's bracketing this section and saying, be fruitful and multiply. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. The section establishes what life is to look like in this recreated world for the first family and their descendants. But then we move quickly from this mandate to God and his covenant with Noah and his sons and all flesh. So the second question I start asking myself is why would God commit himself to man? Why would God, the creator, commit himself to man, the created? Let's define the term covenant. It, it came up several times in this chapter. It also came up in, in chapter 6. What is a covenant? It's a really big concept throughout Scripture. So let's not ignore understanding what it is. Throughout the Bible, covenant is foundational in expressing the relationship between God and his people. And I think this would be a worthy definition to consider. It definitely doesn't cover all the aspects But it's simple, and I think that's helpful for a definition. A covenant is a formal agreement that is binding on all parties involved. Now, there's a lot more I could have included there, especially about biblical covenants, but I want us to just understand that this is a formal agreement that God is making between himself and mankind, and it's binding on all parties involved. In Scripture, the covenants are always initiated by God. He calls it here, I establish my covenant with you. They're initiated by God and they exist for God's glory and for man's good. He never creates a covenant that is is not for man's good. And each one is going to follow a similar format. It's going to identify who's involved in this treaty, the parties. If if you're thinking of a formal document, you'd want who this um, agreement was between. And that's always stated in the the covenants in Scripture. 
He sometimes gives some historical background of, of the dealings between these peoples in the covenant. He clearly outlines any stipulations, any requirements of the agreement. And then there's often, we don't see it here, but there's often a special ceremony as part of this to, to kind of seal it. And this is called the cutting ceremony, where they would literally cut animals in half, separate their, the body parts, and walk between them. And this is a visual picture of, if I break this covenant, if you break this covenant, this should happen to us. We, we should be cut in half. So these covenants, these treaties, were not just passing things in Scripture. When we see them, we should stop and take notice and look carefully because this is God making a formal agreement with his people for their good. I won't go into the details, but there's, there's similarities between the treaties that would happen between a king and a vassal in the ancient Near East. They would have these special treaties, these special agreements between a king, so a ruler, and the, the subjects beneath him. And the king often in those scenarios would provide something like protection for the vassals in exchange for service or payment of some kind. And so there's a lot of similarities between these king-vassal treaties that would have happened probably about the same time or a little bit afterward and the covenants that God makes with his people. So let's look a little bit closer at the statements of the covenants. If you look back in chapter 6, God says in verse 17, For behold, he's talking with Noah, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. I will establish my covenant with you. And actually, the tense of that verb for establish is a little uncertain. He may actually be saying, I have established my covenant with you. Because if you look back to Genesis 3, I have already established a covenant with the people, with mankind, that there will be someone coming from their seed to crush the serpent's head. And then again in chapter 9, we read it already. In verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you. He goes on and and gives the, the stipulation for what that covenant will be, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So this covenant, let let's let's back up a little bit. So this covenant, this specific covenant in Genesis nine, is first of all between God and all created flesh. And in some ways, that makes it different from other covenants. It's not just with mankind. You notice he's covenanting with animals, with birds, with livestock. It's between God and all created flesh, man and animals included, present and future. And in saying future, it's everlasting in extent. It will never end. This covenant is still in force today. And then I'm going to use a word that I think some of the youth might know. It was unilateral. Was was unilateral in there this week in the in your discussion of covenants? Great. I'm not going to put anyone on the spot, but it's unilateral, meaning 
that God made it and he does not impose with it any stipulations, any requirements on the recipients. It's a one-way, unilateral covenant. So God is saying, I am going to do this and there's no expectation or requirement in response to that covenant being made. Did I get it right? Did I get any? Okay. It has as its sign. So covenants often have signs, often have a symbol or something that expresses the covenant for, for people to remember in the future. This covenant has as its sign what God calls my bow in the clouds. My bow in the clouds. And I would caution us here from rushing too quickly past the sign of the covenant and just thinking, oh, cool, that's a rainbow. I like rainbows. I mean, I like rainbows too, so don't, don't get me there. But in doing so, maybe not capturing its meaning in the ancient context, not capturing the people to whom this book of the Pentateuch was delivered would have had a, a concept of what a bow was. And yes, this is most likely what we know of as a rainbow that appears in the sky opposite the sun when there's raindrops in the air, such that the full spectrum of colors from red to violet appear in wavelength order. But to the ancient mind, this would have been a bow. This, so what was a bow used for? If you've seen Lord of the Rings, think Legolas. Okay? A bow was used as a weapon. It was used as a hunting implement. It was a deadly tool of destruction. And God say, is saying here, essentially, that I am hanging up my bow of judgment. In fact, if you think of the direction a rainbow goes, they always touch the, the ground on both sides, if you can see the whole thing. It was pointing away from the earth, not toward it. God is essentially putting his bow up and saying, I will no longer judge. And as a symbol of that, to remind myself of that, we know that God would never forget it anyway, but as an anthropomorphism, God is, is saying to remember this covenant that I'm making with you. I will see the bow in the clouds and I will remember my decision, my covenant not to judge. What an amazing thought that God would covenant for our good in this way because we are so undeserving of any kind of arrangement like that. So now let's try to answer our question. Why would God make a covenant with sinful man? Why would God make a covenant with man? Some reasons God does not make a covenant with man. First of all, he does not make a man because he's under, make a covenant because he's under an obligation to do so. He does not make it because he needs man or because he is lonely without man. He also doesn't make a covenant because it gains him something, not because man is worth covenanting with. There's no advantage to God in making a covenant with us. Nothing he gains. He already has everything he needs. So why does he make a covenant? And I think there's at least three reasons and maybe more. First, because he's already promised a redeemer to come from the seed of the woman. In chapter 3 was the curse on the serpent, and this included a promise. Some would say even a covenant for Adam and Eve and for us that a serpent head crusher would come from woman. And that hadn't happened yet as far as, as they could tell. So God's commitment, God's covenant with Noah, 
is a reaffirmation that he won't destroy by a flood and that he remembers his master plan of redemption. Second reason, as a demonstration of his grace. Why would God make a covenant with man as a demonstration of his grace? Remember, God showed Noah favor. The first appearance of grace in Scripture, God showed Noah favor. He showed him grace. This was not something that Noah merited or earned. So God had already showed grace to Noah by saving him and his family from the floodwaters. But God still had more grace to show, to continue to show to future generations. And those who embrace covenant theology see all the biblical covenants. So there's the one to Noah. Later we'll see to Abraham, one to Moses, to David. There's a new covenant to God's, God's people after Christ. These are extensions and expansions of a single umbrella covenant of grace. And I'd agree with this assessment that God has not changed his plans along the way. One thing didn't work, so he, he kind of had to turn and do something different. God has not changed his plans along the way, but his plans are being more fully communicated, clearer for our understanding in these clear commitments of covenants to man as God's revelation grew throughout redemptive history. So reasons why God makes covenants, he promised a redeemer, a demonstration of his grace. And third, I think it'd be remiss not to say also for his glory. If this one seems obvious, that shouldn't stop us from reflecting on the fact that when God does things that he doesn't have to do, it just brings him even more glory and worship. Everything God does will bring him glory. From the creation of man to the redemption of those he chooses, even to the judgment of sinners, God will receive glory for all those things. And he makes covenants as a way to receive glory And we'll see another big covenant, Lord willing, in coming weeks when we get back to Genesis 12. God's covenant communicated to Abraham. This covenant will be different in the specifics of exactly what God says, different in the sign of the covenant. But basically, he's going to continue to expand the revelation of God's plan to redeem his people through his son, just as he said in Genesis 3. So let's get to our third question now. What can satisfy holy God? What can satisfy holy God? Verse 21 of Genesis 8, which we read, says that God smelled the fragrance from the burnt offerings. English translations refer to it as a pleasing odor or a pleasing aroma as we often don't think of odor as pleasing. Those are kind of don't go together. So a pleasing aroma, something that if you think of God as having a nose and an olfactory sense, he breathed it in and he was pleased. He was satisfied. And he responded immediately. If you look at the way those two thoughts smash together in that verse, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, chapter 8, verse 21, The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Right on the tail of of smelling the aroma of this offering of Noah, God says to himself, says within himself, I will never again curse. 
How could animals burnt on an altar of rocks do all that? Really, how could putting these clean animals on an altar, starting a little fire, how could it please God? Well, I looked a bit into the type of offering that was being offered. Moses tells us in the text that it was burnt offerings on the altar. And we don't know really how much they offered offerings prior to the flood or how little they offered these things. Scripture is relatively silent on that. But the author Moses uses a specific term, burnt offering, to describe what Noah was doing. And really to the reader, ready to enter the promised land, having already received the law, having already received the whole system of sacrifices from Mount Sinai from God, they would have known what burnt offering meant. So we, we need to take our 21st century understanding and maybe bring it up to speed a little bit with what they would have known. So Leviticus 1, later in the same book of the Pentateuch, gives us some detail about what a burnt offering was. We're not going to read the entire chapter. It details, though, this chapter, the method of offering different types of animals as burnt offerings. But we want to look at this to see the purpose of the burnt offering. Leviticus 1. Let me read in verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Later on in the end of verse 9, And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So there's a few things that we see in those, those just couple of verses from Leviticus. First of all, the offering had to be without blemish. Second, it made atonement for the person who brought it. And third, it created a pleasing aroma to God. If we were to study this further, we'd see that burnt offerings had kind of a dual role in that day of both thanksgiving and atonement. And that really fits perfectly with what Noah was doing. He just had gotten off a boat having been saved from judgment. So it makes sense that one of his motives for offering this would be to give thanks. Thanks for protection of his life and his family's lives. But also... It had that aspect of atonement. So he recognized the goodness and care of God, but also the need for his sins to be covered by the blood of another. So I think it's appropriate to take from this that Noah sacrificed as a thankful sinner. Noah sacrificed as a thankful sinner. He recognizing the flood that could have destroyed he and his family, but that God had shown them favor, which was undeserved. And God was pleased. And God responded with covenant. John Piper said this about this text. God's gracious covenant with Noah was a response to pure sacrifice. God's gracious covenant with Noah was a response 
It's a pure sacrifice. But then after this, what happens? Even though Noah sacrificed in faith, he still sinned. I stopped reading in the text, but let's pick up where I stopped. Genesis chapter 9, let's read starting in verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. So as we said before, sin was just as much a problem after the flood as before. And if you question that at all, look at what happened to the hero figure, Noah, after the flood. The testimony of Scripture is this. If you're asking what this means, this passage about Noah becoming drunk, laying in his tent, and then the, the description of what happens with his sons, I, I think just to sum it up, the testimony of Scripture is that after the flood, after Noah's pleasing sacrifice, he lived, he sinned, and he died. We'll come back next week to this poem and more specifically cover the curse and the blessings and what they mean for the next several chapters and really the rest of the story. But today we see God had a satisfied response to the sacrifice and Noah had ongoing sin. And I think this part of the story, Noah's sin, is put in here for a couple of reasons. One of them, the author for me is de-heroizing Noah. Noah is no longer a hero figure that we should all seek to become like. And for, for the people listening, if he had left this out, Noah would be just a great guy. It describes him as being righteous in the sight of God. God had shown him grace. But after a series of events that may have made us think that he was the solution to fix it all, we have this. Instead of looking to Noah as the hero of the story, we need to look past Noah. We need to look to the greater Noah who himself endured an even greater judgment of sin for his people. And yes, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. He was the only one whose, whose perfect righteousness, whose sacrificial death is able to satisfy holy God. He's the sacrifice that Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 5. Just after talking about God's forgiveness of us in Christ, we read in Ephesians 5 verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Why? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus Christ is the only perfect sacrifice that could fully please God. Sacrifice and covenant here come together and propel us forward in redemptive history. 
The institution of God's covenant with Noah reminds us that God is gracious, that God will not destroy all of deserving humanity. That's, that's us. That's each of us. But Noah and we still have a sin problem. This covenant with Noah removed, it completely removed by God's choice, his ability to judge man again in this way. But it didn't meet his justice. It only put it off. The same thing with the sacrifices. They pleased God, but only by pointing to something else, something greater, because sacrifices like Noah offered would be put on altars for hundreds and even thousands of years after that. But they could only do so much. Their primary work, the primary work of those sacrifices was to demonstrate faith and point to the one who would be the once-for-all sacrifice that the author of Hebrews tells us so, so clearly about. Mankind was still hopeless apart from the work of the seed of the woman. One who would cut with his blood a new covenant that would give new hearts to his people to love and serve him both now and forever. So there is an epilogue to this story in Genesis chapter 9. The final remedy for sin has been found. As Hebrews 9.26 says, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. God still hates sin. We are still sinful, but God will never surrender his purpose to fill the whole earth with his glory. The final remedy is Jesus Christ. So, in answer to the question in the title, never again, that's right, never again will God destroy mankind by flood. And God binding himself in a covenant like this with sinful man is a clear display of his glory and his grace that culminated in Christ. Let's pray before we make a few comments about the elements that we're going to take. Father, I, I ask that your word would do its work in our hearts. For many here, I don't know exactly what that work is that you are doing. But we cling to your promise that your word won't return void. It will accomplish what you sent it forth to do. I pray that we would see Christ as more beautiful today. His work of sacrifice for sinners as more glorious. That we would see our place in that as needing a Savior, Lord, far more than maybe we thought when we came in this afternoon. I know that in the absence of reading and hearing your word, I can tend to think that I'm okay. That this thing we do called church might help me along a little bit, but really, I could do without it. That's the tendency, Lord, in our hearts, is to think that we're okay apart from you, but 
pray that your spirit would convince us otherwise. That we need you. We need you for salvation. We need your ongoing work in our hearts for sanctification. We need an understanding of Christ's sacrifice. The only truly righteous one. To make us righteous before you. And I pray now, Lord, for these elements to follow as we take the bread and the cup. I pray that it would be a celebration of your grace. You don't have to make commitments, make agreements with anybody. You are the creator. But yet you choose to do so to demonstrate your grace to us. You choose to make commitments bound by your own holy character that you could not violate. We thank you for that. We thank you for the new covenant in Christ's blood that we're about to celebrate. Pray that we would do so, Lord, with a combination of brokenness and joy that only you can put into our hearts. Brokenness over our sin and what Christ went through. And joy that our sin was taken away because of what Christ went through. I pray this, Lord, in your name, in the name of your Son, for the good of your people. Amen.